Hello and welcome listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in today. My guest is Shema Sadat, an internationally published food writer, food photographer, teacher, and public speaker. Shema specializes in Silk Road cuisine, which is her chosen name for the style of cooking that incorporates her Afghan, Pakistani, and Persian heritages. So just this past July, Shama presented a paper at the Oxford Symposium on Food, and the paper was titled Food Reimagined, Diasporic Identity and Authenticity. Her paper discusses the role of food in nostalgia, and also, super interestingly to me, the concept of authenticity, I'm using air quotes to say that, authenticity, especially in Eastern cuisines, and why that can really be a problematic and limiting word used to label foods. While Shema is a scholar, a writer, and an academic, she really is also a truly wonderful guest who talks about this topic of authenticity, food, and nostalgia from a very deeply personal perspective. I cannot wait for you to hear this episode. I also highly recommend trying Shama's perfect chana masala with just one secret surprise ingredient inspired by her own travels and memories. You can find all of that over on the companion website to this podcast, thestoriedrecipe.com. You can find show notes, all of my guest recipes, food, photography, and styling resources, and also a little bit more about the story behind this podcast. So I invite you to head over there, take a look around. I also invite you to hit subscribe right now to keep up with all the varied, exciting, inspiring stories I will get to share later this fall. Again, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for listening. And thank you to Shema for being my guest. Hi, Becky. Hey, Shema. How are you? I'm very well. I am so excited to speak with you. I actually have been taking a bit of a break from the world of food and, and yeah. you know, my Oxford paper as well, which I have to edit. And so oh, it's just so okay. lovely to revisit this with you. Oh, well, I'm very, very honored. I've been so looking forward to talking to you. Thank you so much. And um, thank you for also being accommodating just with all my childcare issues going on right now. <laughs> Shema, I get it. <laughs> I know you do. I know you do. I get it. And it's, yeah, it just, it is what it is. And so I hope that it's just a pleasant break in your day and it doesn't have to be stressful. We're going to have a lovely time and we're going to delve into all the wonderful things you wanted to talk about and I wanted to talk about. For sure. For sure. Yes. There, there may be too many, but we're going to make inroads. I have a feeling we could talk forever. So we could, we could. <laughs> let's start. Let's start with this paper. Um, well, even before your paper, tell me about the Oxford Food Symposium. I, I didn't know this existed. Tell me about it. This is. Oh, yes. The Oxford Food Symposium is a wonderful gathering that takes place every year at mm. St. Cat's at Oxford University, where you're okay. sharing and exploring food research from across the world. There's a theme and a topic which is chosen every year. Okay. It's by popular vote. And it can alternate mm. between something material and something abstract. This year, the theme was abstract. It was called food and imagination. And so you mm. you have to submit a, like a full proposal and then there is a um, there's a, a group of uh, scholars who will, you know, they will consider your proposal. And if you're if it's accepted, then you're invited to present at the symposium. I have yeah. been reading the papers. The papers oh. are available after two years. They are available online so you can access ah. past papers, which is really, really interesting. A lot of interesting topics. And um, this year, so my paper is going to be fourth. It will be in the forthcoming uh, journal this year. In the oh, fall. oh, that's amazing. So it's being fast tracked a little bit. Uh, no, well, it, you have to purchase it in order to read oh. it. And if you want to read it, online uh gratis then you would have to wait two years i get that's smart that's smart. Yeah, I think it's smart i think it's a great way to support uh the symposium yeah yeah so tell us about your paper i'm i'm fascinated by this oh thank you so much becky so my paper is uh it's a very long it's a quite a long sort mm -hmm. of a, a a project uh quite a deep dive that i took so mm -hmm. 
the theme for this year was food and imagination. And my paper was food reimagined. Mm. And the reason I gave it that title is because my food, my paper really is looking at diasporic identity and authenticity because as you know and I know that you have this love uh, for food and mm -hmm. you know everything that's related to food which is for me culture and identity mm -hmm. you know food is seen as a marker of culinary identity for those of us in the diaspora mm -hmm. and you know it's it's sort of like looking at how has that evolved and so I drew upon the works of a few scholars such as Edward Said, mm -hmm. Razia Parveen and others to analyze the discourse and the narratives which surround the concept of food identity and authenticity so there were three main things that my paper focused on the first was looking at that relationship you know, mm -hmm. the nexus between food, nostalgia, and identity. Mm -hmm. And the second was looking at the Orientalist lens, mm -hmm. Edward Said's Orientalist lens, through which diasporic food is judged. And then lastly, how people like myself in the mm -hmm. diaspora have reimagined the cuisines, which mm -hmm. the cuisine which our ancestors created. And what does that actually mean going forward? Mm, okay. So just a couple of very practical points here for people listening. Can you define both diaspora and also the oriental lens? Who fits into that, to both of those categories? Yeah, so, the so the diaspora would be people like myself, you know, who are living outside of the countries of our birth or the countries yeah. of our parents' uh, birth. So for me, being somebody who was, I mean, I was, as you know, I was born in Lahore, Pakistan, but my heritage is also Afghan and um, Persian. Mm -hmm. So I, somebody who grew up abroad. My father was an international banker. So I left Pakistan when I was very young. Mm. So I am a part of that diaspora. And then the Orientalist lens is sort of that is um, for, for those who would be interested to know more about it. Of course, you should buy Orientalism by Edward mm. Said, because that is his sort of very most significant work. And it's looking at, you know, looking at the East mm. um, as uh, it's an interpretation of how the white gaze, uh, you know, upon upon those living in the East. Mm -hmm. So it's a it's a very large uh, piece of work. Uh, that's in a nutshell. That's how I could explain it. Okay. Okay. And the East would be from um, kind of like from Eastern Europe on, kind of with the outside being like maybe the islands. Uh, to the east of Japan and stuff. Uh, yeah, I mean, the east for me, like when I look at, I mean, mm -hmm. at least in for the, for this scope of the paper, you know, mm -hmm. I was looking at uh, my part of the world, the east, meaning, you know, Pakistan, yeah. Afghanistan and Iran. So that's, it's very focused for me. I wasn't sort of looking at it from a larger, uh, from a more of a, a macro view, but that is for me, it's like, how is the white gaze uh, interpreting cuisine from my part of the world. Mm, okay. Okay. That's helpful. So in layman's terms, would you say, um, and I'm getting this a little bit kind of from what I, I read as you presented this um, right before you went to the symposium, yes. in layman's terms, would you say that this paper is a paper about authenticity in cooking? The paper is a study mm. and analysis about what it means when we use these terms yeah. traditional and as you know mm. traditional and authentic because mm. um it's a it's sort of um it's a it's it's a label mm -hmm. it is a label and i think we have to sort of ask ourselves you know is that is that when we talk about this binary of authenticity versus inauthentic inauthenticity mm. is that a false binary mm. Do you feel like there's a lot of controversy being created around those terms these days in, in the food world? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think that there is. Because mm -hmm. if we think of our food as being relegated to some sort of otherness, mm. that's when you say that, you know, Orientalism still exists because it's that lens through which recipes and culinary creations of the diaspora are wrongly judged. You know, mm. somebody is sort of categorically like I can, you know, let me, if I, if I give you an example, it's sort of like, it's reductionism when you say that 
you're looking at a dish and saying authentic or not, it's similar to like that colonialist trope of this demure exotic woman in her kitchen Mm -hmm. in the Punjab, rolling pin in hand, you know, she's Mm -hmm. like forming these perfectly round chapatis and the aroma of ginger and garlic is rising from the karai and there's a sound of the rickshaw wala outside. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a construction of stereotypes. And these Mm -hmm. are the kind of things that Edward Said critiqued in his, in his classic book, Orientalism. Mm Um, And it's this view, again, through which food of the diaspora is scrutinized and judged. And Mm. that's why I talk about this false binary of authentic versus inauthentic, because it's like you're romanticizing the food and the people of the East. Mm -hmm. Restaurants serving Chinese or Pakistani food will be categorically dismissed as serving, you know, quote unquote, inauthentic food. Mm-hmm. Um, and I liken that to the narrative of this uh, exotic, uh, you know, sexualized woman who's rolling chapatis in her kitchen. So who is doing the uh, who's doing the labeling? Well, this is very interesting that you asked me this question. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, of course, I'm, you know, referring to the white gaze. Mm-hmm. There are people from outside of the diaspora who are doing it, but by the way, this happens within the diaspora as well. Mm-hmm. Right. It's a, I find, uh, and from what I have researched and people that I have spoken to, um, you'll be interested to know this, that it is a, it is a generational, mm-hmm. it is, there's yeah. a generational issue yeah. with it. Like my mother would say to me that I made something which was inauthentic, mm-hmm. but someone else, maybe somebody from uh, my age group uh, would say that, you know, this is really innovative and this is really interesting. Mm, so we have right. Innovative being a positive word, whereas inauthentic being a negative word, all based on all, all describing the same dish based on your perspective. Yes. Yes, mm. absolutely. Because, you know, if you think about it, there's this gentle and constant push and pull between the old and the new generation. And mm. the scholar mm-hmm. Razia Parveen refers to it as a static versus dynamic culture. Mm. It's, it's that desire to maintain the aspects of the home we left behind yeah. versus us, the, the newer generation, we're striving to sort of change, see that change. And we want to continue to evolve. Right. Right. Do you think there's value in both? So uh, I can give you an example. I Mm. I feel like maybe in a more we're having this really wonderful conversation about it from an abstract perspective. Mm. But, you know, when I um, when I when I became a food writer, so it's been a journey for me. And Mm. in the beginning, you know, when my byline was came out, you know, I was very, very proud. And one of um, my first pieces was a an article about uh, hospitality, and I had a recipe in there for a kofta, kofta mm. curry, which and kofta is uh, meatballs in Urdu, and it's mm-hmm. my mother's recipe. Actually, it's my my maternal grandmother's recipe, mm-hmm. and uh, I wish we had a camera right now or some sort of a screen because I would love to have shared with you the photo of this dish, and I was very mm-hmm. proud of it, mm-hmm. and I shared it with my mother. And the first thing that my mother said uh, when she saw it, she said that um, this is not this is not Ami's recipe. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I said, it is. And she said, she doesn't put paprika in her kofta. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And honestly, Becky, it's the only thing I changed. Everything yeah. was mm-hmm. exactly yeah. right. like the, I mean, on, do you know that in this recipe, there are 20 yeah, black right. peppercorns, yeah. not 10. <laughs> Not 15, 20. So you and have you to, dutifully counted 20. I did. I did um, <laughs> half a kilogram of ground beef and yeah. 20 black peppercorns. And I did everything that my mom had told me to do. But yeah. to her, I had sort of, um, and I and I use this word with with uh, in a very serious way. Mm-hmm. According to my mother, I had contaminated that dish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, it's sort of like, what do we want to do? How do we want to cook? And how is the, what does the older generation say to us about how we should be cooking? Right, right. There is, well, first, just to share a funny story. I had a guest on, um, she was, she's, she's Jewish and she was speaking Mm -hmm. about Passover and she had nine of her closest uh, Jewish friends came Mm -hmm. together to cook their own Passover meal. Yeah. Brisket is a very common um, yes, you know, Eastern European Jewish meal. So everybody said, well, my grandmother's brisket recipe is the best. 
and you know, the best, the best. So they got these recipes together. They compared them. First of all, they were all like you're saying within a tablespoon or a brand name apart. You know what I mean? But they, they kind of pulled the recipes together. Yes. They made the brisket, which again, we're talking one or two ingredients off for each. They shared their images with their nine grandmothers Mm -hmm. and every grandmother was angry. Oh, goodness. (laughs) Because they didn't do it exactly like Mm -hmm. any single Mm -hmm. one, you know? So I think that you're right. This is an issue that goes across, you know, all cultures. And um, I guess my question for you is like, is there a sliding scale? Like, is there a point at which a dish becomes so different? Um even maybe I can use the word so appropriated by a new culture that it almost becomes disrespectful. It almost um, is as if there is no value to what the original culture brought to the dish. So Becky, your your question is very interesting, but I think it's, a so what you're asking is a little bit, I think, different than mm. what it is that I had talked about in mm. the paper. So for me, I was talking about, children uh, of the diaspora and how we are changing oh. um, what has been cooked. Like I wasn't, uh, the, mm-hmm. the pa- it's a little bit beyond the scope, but I, I'd love to talk about this. Mm-hmm. It's beyond the scope of my paper as to how yeah. uh, about appropriation, because that's an interesting topic and that's a whole other world. Mm-hmm. So I think that if you are cooking, if you are from a culture, which is uh different than mine. Like, for Mm -hmm. example, if you are not Pakistani or Afghan or Persian, I think that you have to cook a dish with respect. You need to do your research. You need to talk to the people who are from that community. And you have to be very careful and very sensitive about any changes that you are making to a dish. Now, for example, if I were to create um, a taco, if Mm -hmm. I took a taco that has, um, you know, like a a taco, like a carne carne asada or -hmm. what have you, and I started adding Pakistani spices to it, and I said that I had created a new taco, I actually would never say that. Mm-hmm. I think that that is very dangerous territory to mm-hmm. tread. I would not do that. I would say mm-hmm. that I made a Mexican taco and I added some Pakistani spices to yeah. it, but I would not appropriate it. So I think that is something that we have to be very, very careful with. Mm-hmm. Um, even within my culinary, like sort of within my heritage, and I I have received criticism from mm-hmm. others where they have said, well, that's not a traditional dish and that is not a traditional Shirazi salad or mm-hmm. that is not a traditional Halim because Halim has to be made with beef and you can't make it with chicken. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that is sort of, those are sort of the issues that I'm, that I'm very interested in. And I mm-hmm. feel that when people start criticizing you, you are actually um, sort of, uh, you know, limiting us in terms mm-hmm. of what we are able to do. And it circumscribes what us as cooks are expected to create and mm-hmm. expected to serve. And for those of us who work in restaurants, it becomes even more tricky for them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. Yeah. That's a very, that's a really important distinction. And I, I appreciate you saying that, that your paper wasn't really talking about the issue of appropriation, about someone in one culture just kind of yes. essentially being inspired by using a dish as a starting point and then renaming their dish, <laughs> the old dish. That's you were specifically writing about um, first or second generations yes. of expatriates or immigrants to new lands and how they use yes. how they use the yeah. older recipes. Mm. Yes, mm. yes, and I'm I'm so fascinated by that mm-hmm. because you know when um, uh, you you're going to different places and I mean mm-hmm. I was was recently visiting my family in Washington DC one of the places where I grew up mm. uh, I moved around a lot and I find it so incredibly inspiring to see the kind of dishes that chefs with cultural backgrounds such as you know from Philippines or from Mexico or from mm-hmm. India and the kind of dishes that they are creating because they are putting their personal touch into it it's their paprika yeah. you know mm-hmm. the way i put the paprika in the kofta mm-hmm. curry <laughs> and i just find it extremely interesting uh to see what they're what what they have been doing 
Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, as I said, there's that constant push and pull between the older and the newer generation. Yeah. And of course, even some people in the newer generation will say that is not traditional. And that I think traditional is a word that I am comfortable with using, mm-hmm. but saying that something is inauthentic because it doesn't have those exact ingredients. That's a word that I am not comfortable with. Because, uh, you know, the pursuit for the authentic is based on these notions of nostalgia, mm-hmm. uh, you know, about how the dish is not to be contaminated by using mm-hmm. extraneous ingredients. Yeah. And that then becomes very, uh, that that becomes very tricky. Yeah. Uh, because you're sort of imposing something on yeah. an artist. I mean, you're you're a cook, you're a recipe developer, you're a chef. Mm-hmm. And so you're stifling their creativity and and our sense of self. It's a re- very reductionist notion of authenticity. Yeah. So I I'm wondering also if your paper discussed um you've you've laid out really clearly this dis- difference between generations. And I'm wondering if you also discussed regional differences. So one that has come up a couple times on this podcast mm-hmm. is a staple in West African cooking, jollof rice. Yes. But yes. different countries, right? I mean, yes. I'm looking even at your recipe. You gave me a chana masala, which is made in many, many yes. cultures and countries with even access to different ingredients, right? So yes. I mean... everyone can't be the same as every other one because we're talking about major differences in agricultural zones and stuff. So did your paper talk about that at all? And how do you personally feel about that issue? Uh, So Becky, no, my paper did not uh, go Mm -hmm. into regional differences, but my, I, again, for me, I feel the same way where I would say that, you know, it's a matter of allowing people, um, you know, giving like we have agency. Mm-hmm. And we should be able to be as creative as we want to. So I know exactly what you mean about jollof rice. One of the places <laughs> that I grew up was actually Lagos, Nigeria. Oh. And, uh, when we were living there, we had a uh, we had somebody who helped us in our mm-hmm. in our household. Um, his name was Josiah, and he taught my mother how to make jollof rice. And mm-hmm. I'm quite sure that. Um, <laughs> If I shared that recipe with some of my friends, like maybe a friend of mine who's from Ghana, mm-hmm. she would say that, you know, that's not the, the correct recipe because different households have different right. uh, have different recipes. And so, you know, I think what, what I would say in response to what you're asking me is I would say one of my students whom I interviewed for my paper, her name is Harlene Kaur, and mm-hmm. she was a student of mine at a Centennial College where I'm an adjunct uh, professor. Mm-hmm. And it was a recipe development uh, class uh, course that I was teaching. And she mm-hmm. is now a production chef in Toronto. And mm-hmm. she made the most beautiful and innovative dish. Mm-hmm. Uh, she made a uh, butter chicken, uh, butter chicken pie. Mm-hmm. So oh. it's like a chicken pot pie, but when oh, you yeah. have it, it has, it's the butter chicken masala. Oh, and, that's yes, genius. <laughs> really genius. And you know, Harlene like said, I, when I interviewed her, she said, you know, food is art. It's not one thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have to infuse our flavors into local dishes you know, to make it, to make dishes more uh, inclusive. And Mm -hmm. the thing that really stayed with me that she said, which I loved, like we were talking about a a dessert, which is common to India and Pakistan. It's called a gulab jamun, you know, Mm -hmm. those sweet dumplings. Mm -hmm. And somebody actually made a a cheesecake with gulab jamun. And the beautiful thing that Harleen said to me was, with regards to change and innovation, she said, you know, it's a beautiful thing because guess what? Now you're tasting two cultures, Mm. New York Mm -hmm. cheesecake and an Indian dessert. And to Mm. me, that is just so fascinating and it's so heartwarming. And I think that, you know, these are the kind of things that um, this kind of change in progress, I mean, I, it just really warms my heart. Mm, mm. And again, do you feel kind of going back to this, this older question, do you feel that Helene needed some sort of special permission to create these dishes because she was from one culture or another? You see what I'm saying? Uh, does she need permission from you mm. from her elders, for example, or from whom? Because yes, she is well, a or does she- Indian. 
Right. Would she? Yeah. So I guess that's the other question. Would you feel the same as if she was not, if she was not, you know, if she was raised in Japan or Poland or the U.S.? See what I'm saying? Yeah, uh, Becky, I think that you're raising, I think that you're raising a very important uh, point. I, I, uh, I know what it is that you're sort of like the, the, the questions that are playing in your mind. I mean, to me, again, my, my feeling, my visceral feeling on this mm-hmm. is, is that when you are cooking the food of a different culture, you need to do it uh, with respect. And I can tell yeah. you, for example, I, I grew up in Nigeria. I, w- I lived there for three years. Yeah. I personally, Becky, would not tinker with jollof rice yeah. and mm-hmm. innovate it. I personally would not do it. Mm-hmm. I don't want to pass judgment on anyone else, but out of respect for the culture where I lived, and given also that I was very privileged, my father mm-hmm. was an expat in Nigeria. Mm-hmm. You know, we had household staff. And so I would just, I don't, I would not even go there. Mm-hmm. That's how I feel about it. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, I appreciate that answer. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, so what I'd love to do is transition from the paper and the content of the paper. And obviously this wasn't developed in a vacuum. This was not at all. um, This was far from just an academic exercise for you, right? Like you have a really personal, it's a passion. It's you have a really personal connection to this topic. So what I'd like to do is hear a little bit about your story, if that's okay. Yes. Yes. I would, I would love to share that with you. Okay. Uh, My, my the way that I cook is a reflection of who I am and where mm. I come from. So I was born in you know the beautiful and ornate city of Mughal architecture, Lahore, Pakistan. Mm. And uh, I wish I could say that this is my uh, phrase, but I was made in Pakistan, but I was assembled abroad. Mm. And that is a, that is a phrase by the great Pakistani British novelist Nadim Aslam. Mm. And I was very young; I was less than two years old. And my father was. Um, my father got a job with the World Bank, which is mm-hmm. based out of Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. So I moved there with my parents uh, to Washington, D.C. when I was very young. And then my father was posted to different countries, which is why I've grown up in Lagos, Nigeria, Nairobi, mm-hmm. Kenya. Then I lived in Lahore, Pakistan for a while. Mm-hmm. I went to university in uh, the, the U.K. and I did my undergraduate in America, in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. So all, you know, it's sort of like the the pantries of the different countries that I've lived in very much inform the way that I cook. And that's mm. why, you know, this, um, this paper came about because I feel that my heritage is a confluence of mm-hmm. the, the landscapes of the country that I've lived in. And so the way that I cook is very much a reflection of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in addition, you have, you have, you were born and Pakistan, assembled abroad, as you said, and you have additional heritages as well, correct? Yes, yes. So Mm -hmm. my father's side of the family from a a very long time ago, they were from Afghanistan, and then they migrated to uh, Pakistan. And my Mm -hmm. father's mother, my paternal grandmother, Mm -hmm. her heritage is Persian, which is a side of my uh, cultural heritage and my culinary heritage, which I actually discovered quite late in life. It was actually after my grandmother had passed away, and she passed away in 1990, that Mm -hmm. I came to know a little bit more about that side of our Mm -hmm. family, because my grandmother, she spoke several languages. Languages, um, mm-hmm. but the way that she spoke uh, Dari, which is um, similar to Persian, mm-hmm. uh, which is from Afghanistan, she had a very different accent, and it was, it just sounded very different to me. So I asked my father about it, and he said, you know, actually, she speaks Persian. She doesn't speak Dari. And then when I asked him why, he told me the whole story, which is actually a very beautiful story. If, mm-hmm. if we have time, I can I, very quickly tell I, you. I would love to hear it, please. And this is your father's mother. Yes, my okay. father's mother, mm-hmm. Shamim Sadat. So her great-grandfather was a Sufi saint from the region of Khorasan in Iran, which mm-hmm. is the land of saffron so maybe that's mm. why i'm so obsessed with saffron. i feel like <laughs> yeah it's in my it's in my dna 
Yeah. And he was traveling the world, and this is a long time ago, mm-hmm. and he came to what is now present-day Pakistan, because, of mm-hmm. course, Pakistan and in- Pakistan was India back mm-hmm. then. And he fell in love with this hazel-eyed, beautiful woman mm-hmm. who was my father's great-grandmother. Mm-hmm. And he never went back to Iran. Wow. He ended up living and dying in what is now present-day Pakistan. So that is the that is the Persian side of my okay. family and so I'm just so fascinated by it and I really did did sort of like a uh you know it was something that I felt that I needed to know more about because mm-hmm. it was a, it was a part of me somehow mm-hmm. I knew and because my grandmother had passed away in 1990 I just needed to know more and by cooking the food of that mm-hmm. from that part of the world it felt like it brought me closer to mm-hmm. her and it brought me closer to my heritage. Mm, that is beautiful. That is beautiful. Um, Thank you. Yeah. My question for you is, um, well, I, I have a couple. Uh, so first of all, I'm curious, did it feel like uh, when you started to cook Persian food, did that feel like a totally new frontier? Or did you see a lot of relationships between that food and the um, Pakistani food that you were already cooking and just to piggyback. So then I'll give you the floor. Tell me a little bit in general about the similarities between um, the cultures of your heritage. And then we'll talk about the cultures that you also lived in. Yes. Uh, that I, I'm so excited that you asked me about this, about oh, good. <laughs> what I, what I discovered about it, because so already in my, in my family and especially specifically from my father's side of the family, the food is sort of, I mean, so, you know, the, the word fusion is sort yeah. of like something that we don't use anymore because rather than using the word fusion, we just say, you know, we have different influences in the way mm. that we cook. But mm. truly, if I had to use a word uh, that we're not supposed to use, I would use the <laughs> word fusion because, um, for example, if you have uh, Afghan food, mm. it, there's not a lot of heat in it, meaning that, I mean, spice, yes, but spice is not, spice can be cumin, it can be cardamom, it can be saffron. Uh. When I speak of um, Pakistani food or Punjabi food having spice, I'm ta- sort of talking about that tick of heat, you know, ah. that, might, mm-hmm. that makes my nose water a little yeah. bit, makes my <laughs> eyes water. So there are certain Afghan dishes in my family which have a little bit of that green chili or the red chili in it. So I was already kind of familiar because, Mm -hmm. you know, that food from that part of the world, you know, we use cardamom. Mm -hmm. We use a lot of, uh, I mean, rice is is like the queen, you know, of, Mm -hmm. of dishes. And so there's that almost it's like we worship queen uh we mm. worship the rice and persian cuisine there's those similarities and using the cardamom mm-hmm. um you know sauteing onions in a certain way mm-hmm. uh it's it's there are a lot of similarities it's just that in punjabi food like we do like to put a little bit of uh that extra spice in mm. it <laughs> so already there was these there were these similarities so i was really in familiar territory already mm-hmm. um a lot of dishes between the persian kitchen and the afghan kitchen are mm-hmm. also similar for example you know if we're making a rice we'll have that candied orange peel in it mm-hmm. kishmish which is a certain kind of a sultana or raisin mm-hmm. it's the green one the long green one, uh, tart and sweet, uh, Mm. cooking with uh, plums and rice, using lamb. So that was quite, and saffron, of course. Mm -hmm. So that Mm -hmm. was quite very much a part of my family's Mm. uh, repertoire anyway. Mm -hmm. So I really embraced it uh, wholeheartedly, the the Persian cuisine. Mm. So who, um, who cooked for you, Shama, and how did you learn cooking? Oh, that is a, that, that's a long answer, but I'll try to, I'll try to. That's okay. That's what this is all about. Take your time. I will try to keep it short. So who cooked for me now? So I, uh, when I was, when I was growing up, so like from when I moved to the United States until up to when we moved to Nigeria, when I was Mm -hmm. about eight years old, it was my mother who was doing all the cooking in our, in our house. And my mother was actually very, very, um, I would say um, she was intrepid and she would be doing all kinds of interesting things. And again, to use the word fusion is that, you know, she would, for example, if she made something like a spiced uh, ground uh, beef dish, 
And my father was traveling. My mother would take out some Elio's pizza from the freezer. She would put it in the oven. And when it was almost ready, she would put some of that spicy beef on top. And that was, mm. that was like our dinner. And she would do a lot of it. Uh, she, that's how we ate. Like we were, it was, it was innovative. It was creative. Yes. And this is, if, if, if I can interject, this is really yes. interesting because I think it does play to your point about how, um, because she was the one who was, you know, um, challenging you when you yes, made. Because she's it, now gone, come. I think it's at that cycle of life, Becky. Yeah. Mom cannot, she doesn't, she wants to go back to her childhood. Yeah. I think yeah. that that's, mm. it's, a, it's, it's, it's hard to see your parents age. Yes, it, nope. it is. It is hard. It is hard. Yes, it, it is hard. And yes, so I'm oh, just getting I'm a bit sorry. emotional about oh, it. Oh, Shema. Yeah. Um, but, you know, mm. you see that and you say, wow, but I learned this from you. you right, right. And but she you don't like this anymore. Right, so right. And, and she knew she knew she knew what her yes. food was. And she yes. did always but she worries. You don't know. I think she worries that I don't know. And I think it's about, mm. it's that legacy. You want to leave, yeah, right. you want to leave behind that legacy right. as well. But right. she should know that I do know. Yes. <laughs> you know, like, I can't, like, if I have to make mm. that authentic dal with the tarka, the way that she makes it. You or can do it. Yeah. Chicken yeah. karhai that she makes it. Absolutely. I know that she puts yeah. those slivered, you know, pieces of ginger, the, 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 uh, the matchsticks uh, on at the end. But mm, it's delicious. interesting. So up until the age of eight, that's the way we ate. And then yeah. when we moved to uh, Nigeria. Yes, uh, my mother was in the kitchen, but we did have household stuff. Mm -hmm. So I'm, mm -hmm. I'm very open about that, that I, I come from privilege and there was yeah, a certain yeah. um, way that food was served. So my, what I found very interesting was that my mother worked with whoever it was uh, that was in our kitchen um, and she taught them how to make Pakistani food. Ah. So Josiah, who taught my mother how to make jollof rice, was making the most amazing Punjabi Pakistani curries and mm. the dal and his rice. If you shut your eyes and you ate it, you would not know whether my mother made it or whether Josiah made it. Amazing. Amazing. So those, yeah. So those are the sort of influences. And then, of course, my, my both of my grandmothers cooked, my maternal grandmother and my paternal grandmother. Mm -hmm. My maternal grandmother uh, made a lot of like the comfort food for me. So she would make um, chicken broth, which we call chicken yakhni in Urdu. If mm. I was poorly or she would make, you know, other kinds of like rice dishes for me. Whereas my father's mother, uh, whom we call mother in Farsi, which means mother, mm. she was to, for her cooking was something that was done by household staff. Mm. meaning the everyday dishes. So if mm -hmm. it was rice or lentils, vegetables, chicken and whatnot, she was extremely experimental and she was very excited about learning how to make dishes from other cultures. So when my grandparents, my, my paternal grandparents in Lahore, uh, they had friends from different cultural backgrounds and the American um, consul general and his wife were very good friends of mm. my grandparents. And their chef taught my grandmother how to make a roast chicken. Mm. Um, my grandmother how to make a roast chicken, how to make a traditional apple pie mm. and how to make apple dumplings and things like that. So those are the kind of dishes that my grandmother used to make in her home and that she would make for me. So she would make, for example, fresh mayonnaise. Mm. Which again, she actually, she learned that at the Alliance Francaise where wow. they used to have these culinary classes. Mm-hmm back in the day. Amazing. So there are a lot of different influences, but very different types of dishes. Mm. And at that time in your life, everyone was very open to the give and take of, I'm teaching you to make Punjabi food. You're teaching me to make roast chicken. I'm learning jollof rice. Like there was just this give and take. And that was a very, um, it was a free exchange. It was a free exchange. Mm -hmm. And, but I have to be honest with you, I wasn't that interested in learning how to make <laughs> Pakistani food. 
<laughs> really? Yeah. Tell me yeah. why. No, I wasn't. I wasn't very interested in learning how to make Pakistani food. The dishes that I made. So the first thing that I made, I was 11 years old and we were living in Lagos, Nigeria, and it was really disgusting. I made, <laughs> <What> was it? <laughs> I made a blueberry, I made a blueberry cobbler, which I made from a recipe book. So I was in the American International School of Lagos, and there was okay. this really cool cookbook that we would that the school put together with so my mother's recipe, I think, for uh beef and potato Pakistani curry was in it. And okay, yeah, you know, my best friend Hagit, her mother had a souf ganyot, which was an Israeli recipe, and there were all kinds of interesting recipes in it. And somebody had a blueberry cobbler and I'm not criticizing their recipe, but I was using tinned blueberries. I mean, uh, oh, cannot, yeah. yeah, I mean, it was just... <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't too awful. <laughs> no, it was awful. It was really bad. And, uh, you know, so that's when I started cooking. And then when we moved back to Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. I became really, really interested, like my mother, mm -hmm. in Chinese cooking. And it was mostly oh. Uh, Cantonese. Oh, where did that come and from? And then Thai. Oh, Pakistanis love mm -hmm. food, like Chinese food. And, you know, mm. we also have the Hakka food in Pakistan and we have a Chinese population, like Chinese Pakistanis okay. in Pakistan and in India. So okay. we just we love uh, Chinese mm. and, and Thai and, you know, food from, uh, you know, Southeast, Southeast yeah. Asia. I mean, we really, really adore it. So my mother was really into it. And so those are the kind of dishes that I started cooking. So Pakistani food was not until much later, until I was a student at Cambridge in England. Okay. And then was that a way of connecting with your family? Was it because of the community you were around? Yes. What? No, it was just a sort of a way of, it was like, you know, when you're feeling homesick and you want to eat that food. And yeah. so mm -hmm. I was making a lot of lentil, honestly, one of the most difficult, two of the most difficult dishes I find to make are dal, the lentils and, and rice, because mm. there really isn't, there aren't that many ingredients. Yeah. There's no room for error. There's no room for error. And, you know, yeah. your dal could be sort of the water evaporating and you're kind of like, oh, the dal is still raw. Or mm. you could have the rice, which would turn to mush. And so that was something that I that I, I, I cooked quite a lot. But to be honest, Becky, it wasn't until... Well, when I, I was living in Italy, that's when my I did I did a lot of Pakistani cooking. And that was mm -hmm. just because I was so, so homesick. Yeah. And I needed to have something other than pasta. And that's when I made the chana masala a lot, mm. the recipe that I shared with you. Right, right. So is this, would you, you know, call your mom and talk through these things? Was it a point of connection? Yes. Um, yeah. And it was very expensive, by the way, because oh, I was thinking about that. Yes, in Italy. Yeah. <laughs> Back in, uh, you know, this is like back in 2000. And I, I lived in Italy for about six and a half years, five and a half or six and a half years. And, uh, you know, we did not have WhatsApp and FaceTime and, you know, all these like Wi-Fi calls then. And mm -hmm. these were very expensive calls between my mother and I uh, mm -hmm. on the phone between Washington, D.C. and uh, and Rome, Italy. But yes, yeah. it was very much so where my mother was telling me how to make uh, dal, how to make the chicken curry, how to make the chana masala. Mm -hmm. And the chana masala was really a very, um, it was like when I was sad and I was missing home and mm -hmm. I didn't want to eat pasta or I didn't want to eat any of the other delicious, mm -hmm. wonderful Roman dishes, mm -hmm. then this is what I would make. And it was just so easy to replicate it in, mm -hmm. in my home. And mm -hmm. I always had a bag of Tilda Basmati, which my best friend who lived in London at the time, he would come and visit me sometimes from London. And he would, all of our friends, by the way, used to make fun of him and say, oh my God, Gashif is like carrying a five kg bag of Tilda uh, from, <laughs> from London to Rome for Shema. Don't they get rice in, in Rome? I don't know. Maybe it was, maybe you could find it in Rome, but it was just easier to tell a friend to pick it up from yeah, alcohol I, uh, in London. Yeah, I, I interviewed someone last year. Her, um, she, she actually is Iranian, um, and her name's uh, Hanye, and she's oh. moved. I think she's like moved five times now. And she was just, we just were kind of exploring the topic of home. And one of the things she said is that um, when she finally finds the rice, like it's a very specific kind of rice that yeah. they eat in Iran. When she finally yes. finds that yes. rice, she's like, okay, now, now, now I feel home. Yes, exactly. Mm. It's something that you eat and you think, okay, I, I'm home. I mean, even if, 
you know, even when we come back from a, from a trip, Becky, like if we've been away for two weeks and I'm very grateful for it, like we went to Croatia and, you know, a few years ago and the food there is wonderful. But the first thing that my husband and I wanted to have when we came back home to Toronto was dal javel, which is lentils and rice mm. and a little bit of mango pickle. Mm. You know, it's just sort of coming back home and then yeah. your, your, your tummy also wants to feel. Yeah. To settle, right. Yes. It settles. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So this chana masala that you always made in Rome and that you would call your mom and talk to her about yes. what, tell me about the connection to like, when do you remember having this as a child who made it? Why was this the thing that made you feel like, why was this the cure for your homesickness, this dish? Becky, you know, I do not have a sweet tooth. I mm. have I what would I what I would call a carb tooth. Yeah. I just <laughs> die. Really, honestly. <laughs> you, you give me bread, chapati, naan, rice, mm. uh, chickpeas, dal, mm -hmm. uh, you know, mm -hmm. French mm -hmm. fries, anything that has like a little bit of starch and mm -hmm. and carbs and it really I just absolutely adore it. And mm -hmm. this mm -hmm. is a dish mm -hmm. which my mother By the way, one thing that I found very interesting about this um this dish is that there's a big trend right now i think it's called aquafaba yes the yeah like for vegan right? cooking exactly mm -hmm. because and so it's that water that the chickpeas come in yeah and so i remember when i was living in in rome and my mother uh was telling me how to make it she said i want you to take the water from the can and put that in the pot as well and you know how you were telling me about all the Jewish grandmothers and yes. like, this, uh -huh. is, this is not the right version. That is not the right version. So one of my mother's best friends, who is a fabulous, fabulous cook, Auntie Nina, when she found out that I was putting that water in that pot with the chickpeas, she was like aghast. She was horrified. Yeah, she was like, <laughs> oh God, that's so dirty and you shouldn't be doing. So it's just interesting, you know, how the same dish, like so many women yes. who may be wonderful cooks, they you know, they have different versions of it. But coming back to what you your question and what you asked me about how I felt, it's just this was a dish which was it was it's a pantry friendly uh, uh, recipe. So yeah, yeah. if we were traveling or if my mother was tired and, you know, it has all the spices and the flavors, you don't need meat, you don't need to cook it for a long time and you can just sort of be transported back to your childhood and your home. Yeah. When you have this. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So I have to ask you, do you still put the the um the chickpea water in? I do. I, and I'm like, I'm so trendy. I well, no, it's so funny you're saying this because every recipe always says rinse the beans. I, I do this with black beans too. Right. I use I I can't believe I've been admitting this out loud <laughs> because I've always thought, oh, people would think this is so gross. Yeah. I always use the water in the can because I figure any sort of nutrient or fiber, I mean, beans are so high in fiber and protein. Like I feel like anything that has leached into that water, I want I want those nutrients. And you're always adding a liquid back into even my kids are like, What are you doing? And I'm like, you never know what's in that water. There could be something healthy. <laughs> Yes, yes, exactly. And I don't know, I think it's just become trendy now. That's why I, I was like, wow, my mother was trendy when she didn't even, <laughs> she didn't even know she was trendy. And there was also something else that I was writing about. I think it was for, um, I, I had just recently written an article and I think, yeah, I think it was for uh, Bon Appetit magazine and it was mm. these grilled chicken kebabs, like these skewers. Mm. And um, they, I talked about how my mother used to serve them in lettuce cups. And again, I was like, wow, she was trendy back in the 1980s. Yeah. She wasn't trying to be. So, you know, it sort of goes to show that we we do things and we cook a certain way because it's the way to cook. It's a way to say we were here. Yep. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I mean, I think that's the, I, I think it's, um, it's one of those paradoxes, right? Like even with all the innovation and the creativity in the world, there's, you know, to quote Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, and that's a connection also it's, it's part of this cycle. Tell me about the special flavor and the importance of the Aleppo pepper. Um, what kind of pepper is that? And mm, yeah, tell me a little bit. That is that. a bit of a tricky. Uh, so you're like asking me a bit of an incendiary question because oh, my really? mother, I didn't even my, know <laughs> because my mother doesn't put that in her chana masala. <laughs> 
<laughs> but you do. <laughs> yes, I do. Uh, honestly, it is just a sentimental reason. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. My husband and I have traveled to Turkey a lot, the Pul mm -hmm. Biber. It's mm -hmm. a spice that I really love. I mean, we have a love for um, all things Turkey. I mean, even mm -hmm. our son, we gave him a Turkish name because of mm -hmm. our love for Turkey. And it mm -hmm. was a spice that I discovered when I used to visit mm -hmm. Turkey. It has a it has a little bit of heat. Yeah. Mm -hmm. but, and it has a beautiful color. It's like a... Yeah. It's a it's an intense color. It's a brick red, and I yeah. feel that it lends a little bit of heat, mm. but not too much to mask the other flavors that are in right. the dish. Right. And honestly, it's for me, it's like the black pepper in my kitchen. So if mm -hmm. I'm making eggs, it will go on eggs. Really, I put it in many dishes. Well, I'm I glad it goes really yes. well. Yes, I'm glad to have it. Then it'll be a little taste of shama, <laughs> right? Yeah, so that's that that's perfect. Enjoy it. I yeah. that you might you might have adopted as a, a a dish that will be in your repertoire as well. I oh, mean, a spice. I do, I do think this one's going to be a common. I I just yes, I love chickpea dishes. I love masalas. This one looks really really good. Thank I was you. excited to read this one. Like I said, I have a feeling um, my oldest just doesn't. He just doesn't love the sandwich thing, and it really doesn't fill him up at this point right. either. Uh, okay, so. I would love to know more. Just, um, I think what I'd like to do is go back full circle. So we started with the paper. We talked about the topic of the paper, your connection to the paper, your story a little bit. And I'd like to now connect your story and going back to the symposium. So it's such an honor for you to have presented there and congratulations on Thank that. You. Thank you. So I'd like to know this part of your story that is about um, making a career in the food world. So how did you start? Where did you start your blog? And then how has your career progressed to the point that you got this honor to speak here? Thank you so much, Becky, for your mm. very kind and gracious words. It has mm. been, it's been a long journey. Actually, I am um, a uh, I am an economist by by profession. Ah, mm -hmm. Yeah, so I studied economics at Cambridge, and then I worked at the IMF, and then I worked at the Food and Agriculture Organization as an economist in Rome mm. for several years. And mm. then when I came to Canada, I was working uh, at the Treasury. I was mm -hmm. a civil servant in mm -hmm. the as an economist, mm -hmm. and this was in 2009. And on the side, I started putting pen, uh, pencil to paper and documenting the recipes of my heritage. Because mm -hmm. uh, as you know, because I know you speak to so many interesting people, and I know yeah. that you have an interest in food, that, you know, recipes from my part of the world are um, passed down through an oral tradition. Mm. And they are not, they are just not written down. So if I ask my mother for a recipe, she gets a little bit agitated with me and says, don't ask me for measurements. Right, right, right. Mm -hmm. I really wanted measurements. Right. Mm -hmm. So when I came here in 2009, I was extremely, I was very, I'd just gotten married, but I didn't have any friends in Toronto. I'd moved mm -hmm. here from Rome, Italy. I was extremely, um, I was down. I was depressed at that time. Mm -hmm. And so I started uh, cooking the food of my childhood and I started writing these recipes down. And then I started working as a civil servant soon after. And so on the side, I had this blog, mm -hmm. The Spice Spoon. And I think that the blog was really like my launch pad for what it is that mm -hmm. I'm doing in my life now, because mm -hmm. um, I know that sometimes people are a little bit derogatory towards food bloggers, but honestly, it's my biggest honor. Mm, you learn how to wow. be a photographer, you learn how to style, you learn coding, you're mm -hmm. a web developer, you're a graphic designer, you're a recipe developer, mm -hmm. and you are a, a cook, right? Yeah. You mm -hmm. have to do all of these things. And, and an entrepreneur, a business and, developer. And you're an entrepreneur. And so that sort of was my side hustle for a mm -hmm. very long time. And then in 2018, there came a time when like my work in the world of food had ramped up so much. I just couldn't do both um, yeah. jobs. I couldn't do both anymore. And um, <laughs> my mother is the only person. So my father, my sisters, uh, well, one of my sisters and the other sister and her husband, they were all very supportive of me resigning, mm. doing the food job full time. Mm. Uh, my one sister and my mother, you know, women are like very like, um, they're a little bit more risk uh, averse. So they mm. were like, 
you have a job, you have a pension, like, why mm. would you leave that you're doing so well? And, um, you know, so it was interesting. I mean, they're very supportive, but it yeah. was one of those conversations that was going on in the house. And then in December of 2018, I resigned from mm. my civil service job and I started doing my food related work full time. And it's, mm. it's, it's, it's touch wood. It's worked out it's worked out very well. And it's also afforded me a little bit of flexibility as a yeah. mother, as a yeah. parent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My husband has no flexibility in his work hours. Mm-hmm. His job is, is, uh, you know, that sort of nine to five, what he does. And it's not, it's nine to midnight. Yeah. Right. And, mm-hmm. so and, all, a, and on call from midnight to six. <laughs> yes. Yes. So I have a little bit more flexibility, but I think I also have like uh, so many, uh, my income stream is so diversified now that yeah. I don't even have an elevator pitch, Becky. Like if somebody mm-hmm. asks me what I do, it will take me a bit of time to sort of answer what it is that I do. Yeah. So let me ask you this then. We'll close with this because you have a hard out. What is it? What message and what skills do you want to offer and spread with your work? By your work, I don't mean any specific thing. I mean like your work in this food. What do you want to offer the people that are listening? What do you feel like they gain by knowing you, by following you, by being exposed to the things you offer? I want to sort of, I what I would like to do is to share the food of my heritage with others mm. because there has been this you know, as I talked about it earlier as well, you know, there's this othering mm-hmm. of our cuisine. Mm-hmm. And it's it's sort of like, you know, how are we being judged and how are people perceiving our food, you know, to be? And mm-hmm. is it being relegated to this caricature of otherness? And I just mm-hmm. want to sort of say, look, you know, food brings people together and yeah, a good yeah. meal is a good meal is a good meal. And yeah. when people come together, you know, you start asking questions, you're curious, you want to know more about the customs behind <laughs> the food and yeah. what is the story and how does it bring people together? And to say, you know, we are sort of, um, I, I mean, I don't want it to sound uh, cheesy, but I mean, it's it's a matter of preserving our heritage. And I yeah. want to share that with others and say, look, you can use saffron and you can use cardamom. And this is how you can use it to make your food taste super delicious. And yeah. I feel that I have that knowledge and that expertise yeah. that I can I can share that with others. That's the first part. And then the second part is I want people to see food styling as being something really fun rather than something which is very uh, heavy and difficult Mm -hmm. to do. Mm -hmm. And I want to say, look, grab a jam jar, put some flowers in it (laughs) and take your photo or, you know, mix and match your linen. Like it doesn't have to be highly curated. Mm -hmm. It can be a reflection of who you are. Mm-hmm. And that message to me is just, um, it's something that I, that I want to share with others and say, look, I do this and you can do it too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as you talk about this whole genre of food being kind of othered, what do you want people to know about the food of your heritage? How do you want them to perceive it? I want them to know that when we cross borders, like mm-hmm. we are reimagining our cuisine in different ways. And, Mm. you know, borders have blurred now. Mm -hmm. And so with that, you know, culinary identities have also evolved and changed. And so the narrative is changing as well. And so, you know, just give people that space Mm -hmm. because the, the, we're not all like when you, when you see a lot of things about our part of the world, and I know that there is a lot that is going on in Afghanistan Mm. uh, right now, which is uh, extremely, you know, it's very traumatic and it's very, Heartbreaking. Yeah. Thank you, Becky. Yeah. I know that you 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 empathize, and I thank you for that. But I think that those of us who come from that part of the world, you know, we want to reclaim our culinary narratives. You know, yeah. we don't want to only talk about the trauma and loss. Right. You know, we don't. I personally do not want to talk about my lunchbox horrors anymore. I want to talk about the beauty of that part of the world. And I want to talk about my identity and I want others to see, wow, it's so beautiful. Oh, wow. You know, food from Pakistan. Oh, from Lahore. Is this what you eat? Oh, you eat goat trotters. How interesting. Yeah. Mm. You know, you eat, uh, you you cook with the cornmeal. You make like, you know, the makiki roti. How interesting. And I want that to be the point of connection. Yeah. I and I and I respect people who want to talk about the difficult times that they've gone through but I mm-hmm. think that for me 
for me, food is culture and identity. And I, I want yeah. to share that beautiful part. Yeah. 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 It's a culture. I absolutely, absolutely. You know, food allows us to tell stories, Becky, and everybody mm-hmm. has their own story. And if you look at a country like Pakistan, we're a country of, I think, 200 million now, mm-hmm. our population, wow. everybody has a story to tell. And so if we're, if we're going to stereotype people, and so people will, you know, ask questions about, you know, how are women treated back home? I mean, yes, we, of course, we have problems. And there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Definitely. But you know, I also think about somebody like my father, or even like my, my grandmothers who were feminists, Mm -hmm. and believe Mm -hmm. in, you know, the education of women, and that women have have agency. I mean, my father has three daughters. Mm-hmm. You know? So <laughs> if you think about that, um, you know, I just want to tell tell my story and I want to share that and I want to yeah. connect with people Yeah, in that way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Look at this. Um, look at this. You have built two successful careers in parallel. <laughs> Thank you. It's been such such an honor to talk with you. Um, Shema, can you tell everyone where to find you and how to connect with you? And of course, this will be in the show notes as well. Oh, thank you, Becky, so much. I would love, love, love a follow on Instagram, Spice Spoon. Mm-hmm. And I am also, so I do have my my website, my blog, thespicespoon.com, mm-hmm. which is going to be going through a major facelift and a oh. complete, it's going to be a bit of a recreation. Amazing. So that will be um, this fall soon. Okay. And I would I would love to connect uh, that way. And I love hearing from everybody. So if anybody wants to talk a little bit more about what we discussed on your podcast, I would love that. Absolutely. I will put all of that contact information in the show notes. Thank you so much. You have a wonderful rest of the day. Okay. Thank you, Becky. I appreciate it so much. Bye-bye. Thanks again so much to Shama and thank you all for tuning in. I hope you have a great week, my friends.